Good morning, everyone. What follows a few, is a few considerations on the topic of contemplative practice. I'd like to say a few words about the fourth of the Satipatthanas, the Dhammanupassana Satipatthana, the contemplation of um, mind objects as they are sometimes translated. Um, those of you who have been here for a while will probably be aware that I've gone through all four of the Satipatthanas in the days previous to this. If we look at the structure of the Satipatthana teachings, then it seems not so straightforward to make use of this fourth of the forms of establishment of a mindfulness. While the first three on body, on feeling tone, on mind states, or mind, uh, the climate of mind on chittas, seem reasonably straightforward as meditative instructions. The fourth one, as a meditative instruction, seems rather more complex. We have a number of items that are listed in that fourth Satipatthana. And it may be just worth having a brief look at the, that term Dhamma in there. Translators differ. Some people translate this as um, investigation of states. That's probably the most liberal, the most broad way of understanding the word Dhamma here with a long A, meaning uh, not the Dhamma of the Buddha, but the many Dhammas that constitute our experience. Then there are uh, translators who insist that these uh, Dhamma here refer to particular categories of reality as these categories are formed in Buddhist teaching. I believe they're both true and they shouldn't be held against each other. Both of these interpretations seem uh, very possible to me and both of them seem very meaningful to me. So we have first Dhamma roughly equivalent to something like phenomena or in psychological terms that would be psychological qualities, states, dynamics, patterns of mind. And in the second way of translating that term Dhamma we would arrive at something quite untranslatable, namely headings of uh, the experience of reality as we find these headings in the teaching of the Buddha, as different groups of, say, Dhammas. In both ways, um, the fourth of this Satipatthana seems to be slightly broader in scope than the first three ones. So, what can be done with this? Well, we can look at the teachings to start with and we find out that of the number of Satipatthana suttas we have, they actually disagree what is part of that fourth Satipatthana. So the Pali Satipatthana Sutta has the most comprehensive list of things to be contemplated under the Dhammanupassana. The other translations or the other um, editions of the Satipatthana teachings we have from other traditions, um, they are in agreement with the Pali only insofar as they contain the sets of hindrances, 
and the sets of awakening factors. Those two lists are in all recensions of the Satipatthana Sutta we have access to today, which is interesting, which makes them stand out to be probably the most authentic and the, the most weighty uh, two lists. So in a way, these awakening factors and these hindrances are two sets of dynamics or two sets of qualities that are particularly pernicious when it comes to attempt awakening and are particularly useful when it comes to attempt awakening. So it's probably worth giving those um, some preference. The other sets, let me just mention them, the other sets mentioned in the Pali recensions of the Satipatthana uh, are the five khandhas, the five aspects of experience, the six ayatanas, the six sense fields, and the four truth. And how you can translate the, the teaching of the four truth into a meditative object that can neatly fit into our notion of formal practice is quite a miracle to me, because there is probably no bigger, more comprehensive teaching than the four truth. In the Buddha's own words, this is the elephant's footprint, and as, in, as the elephant's footprint is so big that the footprints of all other animals can fit into them. So we have, in the Buddha's words, the teaching of the four truths to be so broad and uh, in scope that all other teachings he has ever given can be fitted into those four truths. So as you can see, this is not easy to translate this into a straightforward kind of meditative instruction as to breathe in, breathe out sort of type. However, maybe we have to understand these, this fourth Satipatthana in a different league. One simple way of understanding this fourth Satipatthana is that you use these sets of qualities, particularly the hindrances and the pujangas, the awakening factors, simply as a kind of thermometer. This is a sort of question you drop into the mind. Well, just a check-in question. How much wakefulness is happening right now? How much investigation is happening right now? How much energy is happening right now? How much calm is right now? How much you know, peacefulness is right now? How much equanimity is right now? How much profound stillness is right now? Or the other way around, you could see. So. No sati, forget investigation of dhammas, you know. Virya goes flat. Piti can write off. Uh, no pasadi, no calm. Uh, no samadhi because no calm. So the only thing I can do is try to be equanimous. But maybe this is not wise. But an honest and sober acknowledgement of the current qualities of mind, their presence or their absence, gives us actually a very good chance to develop maybe what's absent or what we deem to be insufficient or what we feel is not yet developed. So again, while there are specific ways to bring about these awakening factors, which I will speak on some other occasion, just as a sort of litmus test or as a thermometer uh, diagnosis of the current mind state, it may be quite useful to actually just test out how much 
desire is operative, how much aversion is happening, how much restlessness, how much sleepiness, how much doubt is currently happening. Just to name certain aspects of one's own experience is often already quite liberating. And if it is not liberating, at least it gives you a clearer idea what you're up against. And um, remember, these meditative hindrances, these five nivaranas, uh, meditation teachers tend to pass them off as basically meditative problems, you know, occurring in formal meditation practice, which is certainly true, but they're not uh, reduced to that. The way is quite clear that although ignorance has a beginningless source, uh, ignorance is helped greatly by, for example, those five hindrances. He makes quite clear in certain statements that the thing that supports the arising of avijja, of ignorance, is greatly supported by those five hindrances, not just in your meditation, but outside of your formal meditation practice. So those five hindrances are not just meditative problems. They are existential problems. Obviously, they will show up in meditation, and it's necessary to be able to identify them and counteract them, but the resolution of those five hindrances doesn't lie in your formal meditation practice. It lies in your life. Yeah. All of those five hindrances have to be met with in your life somehow. You can do tricks in your meditation practice to cope with sleepiness, for example. But ultimately, you will have to find out where that lethargy, that sleepiness, or that numbness comes from in your life. So. Um, if any one of those hindrances, and you recall them, desire is one, aversion is one, uh, numbness, sleepiness, lethargy is one, restlessness and agitation is another one, doubt is the last one. If these things occur in your meditation, A, it's good to name them. To know your enemy is always better than not to know your enemy. And B, the resolution of these hindrances is probably not to be found in your meditation practice alone. While there are things you can help to overcome them, ultimately all these hindrances have their roots in everyday life, not just in your meditative approach. The same holds true for the Bojangas, for the awakening factors. These awakening factors um, are a strange list of qualities. Some of them seem to be things we need to do, things like investigation, setting up sati, mindfulness, bringing forth energy. And then there are certain things which we don't actually seem to be able to do in a sort of linear and willful way. You can't just do piti, or you can't just do stillness. You can't even do samadhi. And you can try to practice equanimity, but basically, in my books, equanimity is a fruit quality. It is a resultant quality. It's something that comes about by you meeting that part of you which is not equanimous, which is impatient, which is needy or greedy, or which is aversive. And meeting that with skillful means brings about equanimity. So. This list of awakening factors doesn't seem to be a kind of clean recipe 
how to get awakened, as the title may suggest. Some of them seem to be things you need to do, and some of them seems to be things you actually get as a result of doing. To complicate matters more, uh, there are teachings which tell us which awakening factors should be practiced under what circumstance. And I'll see whether I can fish that out maybe for tomorrow. So for the moment, and for all of you all doing different practices, and some of you have only just arrived, so it may be worth just considering using these hindrances just as investigative qualities and say, okay, what have we going now? If this mind state, if we sift things through this mind state, is there desire present, wishing, wanting, longing, uh, aspiration? This would be all forms of desire. By the way, also wishing things to be otherwise or different or gone, that would be equally desire. Recall desire, Buddhist psychology, is rather more broad. It doesn't just comprise uh, the wish for a particular experience. It equally comprises an abstract quality, things which are not experiences, but things which we would call love or safety or control. We can have lots of desire for abstract qualities, which are, strictly speaking, not something we experience through our five senses. And the third dimension of desire is even more uh, remote from the Western notion of desire. It's the desire to get rid of something. It's the wish that something be gone, that something stop happening, that something stop occurring or just not take place. The guy with the nylon trousers in the front row when, who makes these creaky noises when you're trying to get into your jhanas. You know? And you just wish that this guy meditate on the dark side of the moon right now. You know? That is an example of desire in Buddhist psychology. It's called the vibhavatanha. It's called the desire to get rid of. And this uh, may be necessary to mention because sometimes people think of desire... Um, only in terms of sense experience. But that is, desire is a more profound teaching in Buddhist uh, psychology. So consider also the desire for things to be different or gone or not happening as a form of desire. Sometimes this can be confused with aversion. And we may need to go into some detail on this, right? not right now. So, if the mind does hold forms of desire, if it does hold form of aversion, is there a lack of energy, a consistent, recurring lack of energy when I meditate? Sleepiness, the body has no tone, the mind does not become malleable, the clarity seems to go out, or I just get incredibly heavy. Tibetan tradition has a notion of the sinking mind. Yeah. Christian contemplatives have identified a big obstacle called the Atedia, the acidity of mind, which, as you know, is uh, one of the great enemies of samadhi, you know, a mind that is, um, has a drop or two of vinegar in it, is unlikely to be cohesive, is unlikely to become calm. So aversion is a real killer for um, samadhi. Is the mind restless? Is the body restless? Those would be part of the questions to investigate whether the hindrances are present. 
am I consumed with doubt? Just asking these questions and say, when you're trying to get in touch with the, with the quality of mind, you know, what is happening here? The same holds true for the Bhujangas. Is there mindfulness present? Is there curiosity there? Is this alive, what I'm, what I'm experiencing here? Is, there a, is this relationally alive? Does my mind calibrate onto objects? Does he zoom in on onto processes. Is he, is he mobile? Is there a dexterity there? Anything dead is un, uninteresting. Even if it's still, if it's dead still, generally not very interesting. There are many forms of mind states which are not alive in meditation. And just because they're still doesn't mean that they're fertile or doesn't mean that they're producing insight. We used to call this bhavanga samadhi. It's kind of a sort of functional stillness of mind where you basically it's a bit like cruising through a, you know, one of the craters of the moon. It has a slightly dusty, apocalyptic feel to it. Yeah, it's kind of you can't really see many hindrances, but it's really not really alive either. Yeah? So it's like flying through black interstellar space, or it's spread eagled, and you just, yeah, and you don't know what it is. Textureless, flavorless. This is not a healthy state to be in. It may be quite, you know, good for the body. It's kind of three quarters of an hour, brainless regeneration on a physiological level. But in terms of awakening, it's not very healthy. So if you notice something of that nature, just get out there. Don't try to wait till it suddenly comes alive or so. Get out. Distract yourself. (laughs) Seek. Think of the Buddha. Think of something good you've done. Think of something you care for. Um, get out of that black state. Uh, and we're interested in a stillness that is alive, a stillness that is imbued with sati. Anything where, where, where sati isn't present is suspicious, even if it is peaceful. So, is there interest? Yeah, that's the cheapest version of piti. Just a keen mental interest that is about as mundane as piti can get. Piti has many phases and many flavors, but one form is when the thing that you're occupied with invites you, when you don't seem to have to put yourself to it, but when it actually takes you in, when it calls, when it's easy, when you have available energy for something and there's a keenness of your application with that or to that. There are other more fascinating aspects of PT which are of partly energetic nature, partly physiological nature. Some of them mostly pleasant, some of them even unpleasant. So you notice how much of that is there. Am I interested in what I'm doing? Maybe that is already a magic question. And you find out that, no, I'm not interested. All I'm doing is kind of forcing myself. That will need to, that will need some investigation in your motives. Is my mind still? It's not deep samadhi, but pasadi would be a profound stillness. Something that is, uh, it's the kind of feeling of a pond. It's a pond that is 
extensive and that is quiet and you're still hovering at the surface of the pond but you can see that it is really smooth yeah? it's kind of like a big promise is the mind deeply still you know profound vitalized samadhi uh, calm the bliss that goes with it the strength that goes with it the energetic availability that goes with it the the inspiration that goes with it the sense of um, deepening sense of amazement sense of wonder sense of gratitude something marveling equanimity is not so easy to notice you tend to notice it under fire you know when you're sitting here you can feel quite equanimous if all the conditions are perfect Uh, but the real uh, valor of equanimity you only find out when the conditions are not perfect. But you can learn to identify equanimity and learn to distinguish it, say, from content or from boredom. Some people just never feel equanimous. They just feel bored. If your life is geared to sensory stimulation, then you just never feel equanimous. You feel either engaged or asleep or bored. So for many of us, equanimity has to be actually found. Even and we need to learn to acknowledge this. Obviously, equanimity is a very lofty. It's the, in many ways the most cherished of the four Brahma Viharas, and it is uh, associated with deep states of stillness as the last uh, quasi-emotional quality. So that's has many facets, but just. Would you recognize equanimity? I mean, that's an interesting question. If I was equanimous, if I didn't want to get rid of something, if I didn't need something, if I didn't wish for something, would I recognize this? Or would my mind just home in on one of its pet deficiencies or its pet obsessions or its pet problems? Sometimes it's not easy for us to be equanimous because we're so identified with movement with fighting for or fighting against, with uh, being deficient in things and trying to obtain things or fix things. It's sometimes not even possible for us to identify equanimity. And before we can cultivate it, obviously we need to have a flavor in our own psychological experience. So use these contemplations. This may completely not be what you need to do right now in your meditation because you have just arrived and all you want to do is to still your mind. So then simply disregard what I say. But do not forget it. It's good to make use of these qualities as an investigative tool to find out what you're actually working with. A deeper understanding of what you already bring to this practice. And lo and behold, sometimes you bring more virtues to this practice than you may have admitted to yourself. I know many people are surprised by the goodness of their own minds, by the goodness of their own virtues, and by the qualities that bring them here, that bring them to practice. We are a very problem-centered society and time, and much of our motivation comes from fixing, improving, pacifying, making things more just, uh, motivation, which is good. I wouldn't want to miss this, just to be clear, but it's only half of this story. There's another half of the story where we actually 
already abide in much goodness. There are conditions that are already favorable. There are already virtues, not just the things we need to develop, but the things we also need to more deeply acknowledge and allow ourselves to even rejoice in. So, enough for me this morning. Let us practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.